unlike I think most of the people who have appeared on the stage so far today, uh, someone who's um, uh, a, a works for a technology company or um, has something to sell, in fact. I'm a, I'm a writer, I'm a visual artist, um, I'm a computer scientist by training. Um, I consider myself to be a technologist, a kind of vague word that means I'm just really, really interested in this stuff. Uh, the title of this talk is, is New Dark Age, uh, which sounds grim, because it is. Uh, because I find myself, uh, despite coming from, a, as I say, a background in computer science, uh, a background as a, an internet hippie, uh, a kind of joyous nerd, someone who loves technology, to be deeply concerned about many of the trends we see uh, in technology, uh, and thus in the world today. And I'm going to talk a little bit about where that phrase comes from and what I, what I mean by it. I'm interested in the way that we talk about technology primarily, because I think when we talk about technology, we're usually really just talking about us uh, and, it's, and our society and the way that we, that we interact with one another. And so an interesting place to start with this idea of a new dark age is, is with the cloud, um, which is such a fascinating term to me. Um, we, we hear this talk of the cloud as though it's some sort of magical, mysterious, faraway place where stuff just happens, you know, magically and beautifully. We upload our photos, we tell it our secrets, we talk to our friends through it, we give it all our money. Um, but it's sort of nebulous and invisible. And yet it's always really important to remember that the cloud is actually uh, very solid. It's huge buildings filled with computers uh, that are owned by companies that exist within legal jurisdictions, within particular geographies, that have an impact on the world in, in, in many ways that I'll talk about. But then also I always want to insist that that name still tells us something important about how we interact with it, that it remains sort of cloudy, and its cloudiness, the very uncertainty that it brings, is, is super important. And I like this image of, of technology and the weather, uh, technology relating it to natural systems. I found looking at that, and particularly at its history, to be super productive in thinking about these things. Because there's always been, or at least for the last century, a very interesting and tight relationship between our ideas about the weather and, and computation itself. This is a few pages from one of my favorite books. This is Lewis Fry Richardson's 1922 text, uh, Weather Prediction by Numerical Methods. Richardson was one of the first scientists, mathematicians, to argue that it would be possible to predict the weather through data. This, at the time, was a super radical idea. Um, no one believed that the, the, the natural environment was kind of susceptible to mathematics in this way. But Richardson proposed a method which really came to define all of computation, which is that if you divide the world up into discrete boxes, take certain measurements, produce data, you can then compute that data and predict the future. Richardson did this. He wrote a book on it. Before he wrote the book, he actually did a full weather calculation. He took all of this data for Western Europe, and he worked out point by point what the weather would be like. But this was before computers. He did this with pen and paper, and it took him about three months to do a single daily forecast. He also did it under shell fire, because he was an ambulance driver in the First World War at the time. It was an astonishing achievement. Um, but he didn't really imagine that this would actually be effective, because he didn't foresee computers. In fact, it took another 30-odd years before this was transformed into a computer program. This is the same or a very similar weather forecast performed on a computer. And it's, in fact, the first 24-hour forecast that ran quicker than 24 hours, because we finally had computational power that would keep up with the actual weather. 
And this is the computer that it was performed on. This is the ENIAC, one of the very earliest computers that was built in the US during the Second World War. ENIAC, one of my absolute favorite computers. You can nerd out at this if you want. Um, it's a beautiful thing. It took up two whole rooms uh, here at the Aberdeen Proving Grounds in Maryland. And it was invented basically to do two things, to predict the weather and to build atomic bombs. That's basically where computers come from, from weather prediction and at, uh, building atomic weapons. And they contain that history within them to this day. There's a beautiful uh, little story by one of the engineers who first worked uh, on, the, on the ENIAC, a guy called Harry Reid. In his kind of um, farewell address, he says this beautiful thing where he said, uh, working on the ENIAC um, uh, was kind of like living inside the computer um, because it uh, completely contained you. It was a very personal relationship. And now we think of a personal computer as something very small that we carry around with us at all times. But actually, that's not really true. This room-sized computer didn't shrink down at all. Rather, it expanded. And now it includes the whole of the planet. Uh, it even goes up into kind of space in the form of satellites. We all live inside that computer that Harry Reid and others envisaged in the 1950s. Um, and it affects every aspect of our lives. It also really affects the way we kind of view the world and have expectations of it in the future. This a graph that many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with, is Moore's Law, uh, the, the rule of thumb developed in the 1950s that, would say, that said that processing power would double every two years. And amazingly, it has held true ever since. Gordon Moore, the guy who, who came up with this um, from Intel, uh, it was just a rule of thumb. It was just something he observed. He didn't really expect it to last, and yet it has. And it's kind of got inside our heads. It's produced a kind of idea of the world that if we only have more computers, and more processing power, we'll basically be able to achieve anything. We'll always have this fuel for total expansion. And that's meant to be a slightly worrying phrase. Fuel, the fuel for continuous and ever-growing expansion is something that's actually causing quite severe problems for us in the present. Here's a graph that goes the other way. So not Moore's law going always up and to the right, but this is a, a graph of something that people in the pharmacological sciences, people who are working on development of new drugs, coined a room's law. That's Moore's law backwards. Because this is a discovery they've made that, in fact, over the last 20, 30 years, as more and more computers have been thrown at the problem of drug discovery, the results have actually got less. We're discovering that the larger and larger data sets and more and more powerful computation are not actually helping us with forms of discovery that we need. It's actually getting harder and harder to sort through this data, even with the newest tools, purely using computational methods. What's fascinating about this is that many pharmacological companies are now actually changing their practices so they don't just rely on kind of massive data sets and powerful computation alone, but actually start to return to the idea of having small teams of scientists working on hunches, essentially, working on feel, using their own human experience in opposition to the purely computational thinking. And this failure of computation alone to accurately predict and assist us in the future is being replicated everywhere. In fact, in the very first thing that we set out to measure and predict in the first place, which is the weather. These are images of turbulence in the North Atlantic from the latest research papers. The, uh, the atmosphere, as I'm sure you're aware, due to climate change, is warming. Not Predict not you know, predictably or unpredictably in the future, but right now, these are graphs of the current situation. As the atmosphere warms, 
air masses and their behavior become less predictable. As a result, huge areas of atmosphere shear against each other, producing what's called clear air turbulence. Clear air turbulence is specifically the turbulence that comes out of clear air. It's totally unpredictable, and it's getting worse as a result of climate change. And we can't predict it or the other weather that's occurring because the only thing we have to go on is past data, which, because of climate change, is no longer the case. Our, our entire practice of using past data to predict the future is starting to fail because of climate change, but also as a result of these technological ideas we've inherited from the history of technology itself. And in fact, of course, technology is one of the main drivers of climate change, not just generally in terms of the legacy technologies of fossil fuels that we use all the time, but also in contemporary technologies. The internet is a vast driver of climate change in itself. The electricity required to do all the kinds of big data or AI processing you might be here today is a massive driver of climate change, equivalent at least to the whole of the airline industry. So we're already contributing to this through the networks that we're hoping will kind of get us out of it. And we're not going to be able to think about this at all much more clearly for very long. This is another graph going up and to the right. This is CO2 as measured at the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii. It's called the Keeling Curve. It shows the exponential growth in CO2 in the atmosphere that's been ongoing uh, for over, well, for forever, essentially, but increasing exponentially in the last 50 years. What this graph shows is that we surpassed 400 parts per million in the atmosphere a couple of years ago. What it doesn't show is that indoor CO2 regularly passes 1,000 parts per million. It's probably somewhere close to that in this room now. It's not a lot of ventilation. Uh, we're all breathing in here. Uh, over 1,000 over, over, parts per million, human cognitive ability drops by 20%. You're dumber by breathing in CO2. And we're actively increasing the CO2 in the atmosphere. It's getting harder and harder to think. And our technology is effectively contributing to this at present. One of my favorite examples of this is a phenomena that park rangers in the US name death by GPS. This is when people have become so accustomed to uh, trusting into the technological systems that they've been given that they follow them wherever they go. They've had people die in the middle of Death Valley because they've driven their cars down dirt tracks following that little bright line or examples of people driving into rivers or into the sea because the map shows that that's where the road goes. We've, we've given so much over to these computational systems that we're losing our ability to think for ourselves. And in case you think that's just something that, well, basically stupid people do, um, it's actually an example of something that's quite well known uh, in psychological and neurological studies. It's called automation bias. Um, it means basically that we trust technology, or rather, like, not even us, like deep structures in our brain do this. Uh, they've put pilots inside highly sophisticated simulators, very well-trained pilots, people with thousands of hours of, of flying experience, and they've put them through simulated emergencies in which the pilots know exactly what they need to do. And then they put in some kind of automated system that at a critical moment suggests they do the wrong thing. And 90% of the time, even highly trained people follow the bad advice with hideous consequences when given uh, that advice by an automated system that they trust. Our brains basically like the easy way out. They're very easy to short circuit, uh, particularly with technology and things in which we trust. Of course, not all of us even have the choice 
about following these automated systems because of the ways that we're designing them into society. Uh, this is a, a, a picture of an Amazon warehouse, which is an absolutely kind of fascinating infrastructure that displays some of the uh, qualities of the kind of spaces that I'm talking about. Um, this is one of the places where, where you have an ENIAC-like room of computation, although you wouldn't really know by looking at it that you're looking at a computer, but you kind of are. Amazon uses this really extraordinary thing called um, chaotic storage. So um, what happens is basically if you're a large e-commerce company and you have millions if not billions of things for sale, people don't order them alphabetically, right? <laughs> they don't order them nicely, essentially. They order a bunch of random stuff. And if you have a vast warehouse, you don't want the people picking those things to have to walk like two kilometers this way to get that thing and then two kilometers back this way. Right? You need to group them according to how people actually order them. And they use an algorithm to do this, the chaotic storage algorithm, which means basically on these shelves you might find a book next to a DVD, next to some cleaning products, next to some bath products. Whatever it is, the algorithm has decided are likely to be bought together. The result of this is that this space is completely unnavigable to humans. It looks like chaos. You have no chance of finding something in this which is why employees who work on these warehouses wear wrist-mounted devices that guide them like GPSs around the space. They're completely automated by a machine. The side effects of this, of course, are that it's also uh, possible to monitor the employees totally, to know how long their lunch breaks are, when they take toilet breaks are. Um, it's possible to de-skill the workforce. There's no longer any incentive to educate your workforce when all they have to do is follow a guide like this. Um, and it's also very possible to monitor them and keep an eye on possibly who's talking to each other, who's planning to unionize, to have full and utter total control over your employees. And everything outside that, as I say, including the, um, the lack of any necessity of educating your employees, is damaging to society more broadly as well. There's something very weird, I think, that we're designing so many of the technological tools we use every day to effectively hide things from us. Right? These, are, these are what are known as dark kitchens. Um, if you use a delivery app in a big major city, in, in, in the UK it's things like Uber Eats and Deliveroo, um, the demand has so far outstripped the supply possible from the restaurants that popular restaurants basically put up these containers in car parks where you have chefs working 12-hour shifts to provide uh, meals for, for the orders. The, the distance between this and the image that we sell of technological convenience is extraordinary. I find it amazing that we put so much effort into hiding the labor and the work that actually goes in to providing us the lives we want. And of course, this isn't just at the level of delivery apps. This is happening across almost everything that we do. For everything that's made technologically convenient, something is hidden. And it's usually people who are worse off and getting worse off because of these tools. The, the examples of this are just extraordinary. I, I, I'm fascinated by uh, the phenomenon of Pokemon Go. Uh, I'm sure there's some people here who play this. Um, but I'm, I'm also highly aware that most people who play it are not aware that many of the locations that they are taken to by the app have been sold uh, to advertisers. So that you literally um, follow to find your Pokemon gym or the, or the you know, high-value uh, Pokemon. Uh, and you suddenly find yourself deposited at the front door of a fast food restaurant or a particular shop that's been personally identified for you uh, by uh, the various analytics that the company holds on you and that it aggregates from everywhere else. 
you think it's, just, it's not just the Amazon workers who are being directed around step by step for your convenience, it's also millions and millions of people playing alternative reality games who have literally no idea that they're being walked through the world and guided through it by forces that they have literally no idea about. And this has, in other places, absolutely devastating societal effects. Um, one of the places in which this plays out incredibly clearly is in YouTube. Um, which is, frankly, a cesspit of awful things. Um, but on what's particularly uh, unpleasant tactic is, what's, is autoplay and its suggestion algorithm. Autoplay and YouTube's suggestion algorithm are completely uncoupled from any kind of uh, idea of societal value or ethics. And this is exhibit A. This is Walter Cronkite talking very sensibly, uh, very straightforwardly, about climate change back in 1980. Uh, and these are the suggestions that YouTube uh, thinks that you should watch next. The succession of videos uh, debunking or, attempt or claiming to debunk climate change, uh, to say that this is not real, that this is not something you listen to. This is the suggestion from a vast corporation that has millions and millions of people following it uh, uh, to sh and, and shapes their opinions and their thoughts in very real ways. Um, there's a... There's, a, there's something that's happening here that's actually quite well documented. There's a lot of papers on this. Basically, what you have is you have an algorithm that's been optimized for people's attention. And that's it. All it wants to do is to keep you watching for longer. And it's discovered by accident, but very realistically, that what people want is kind of contrary opinions. What they want is sensation. What they want is the discovery that they know something that other people don't. It's a very basic human desire. And so YouTube essentially radicalizes people. It essentially takes you on a journey from what may start in a very innocuous place or even a sensible scientific place and deliberately moves you into a place of increased political paranoia and uncertainty and falsity. And this is, this is not what the algorithm was designed to do, but it's what happens when technology is decoupled from any wider context or social ethics. And the problem, is, the problem is, we're so easy to do this to. My favorite example of this, well, men, let's say, are very easy to do this to. I'll narrow it down to that. Um, some of you may have heard of Ashley Madison, uh, which is, was, was a um, dating website for people who wanted to have affairs. People who wanted to have affairs. Um, a few years ago, there was a, they had a huge data leak. Uh, hackers got in, they took everything out, they put it all on the internet. Um, it was very, very embarrassing for a lot of people. Um, but researchers went through the data. And they discovered that though this was a website for men and women, it probably won't surprise you too much to hear that 90% uh, of its users were men. Um, and in fact, when they looked at the accounts that were registered as female, they discovered that uh, only about 1,000 of those were active. The rest of them were people who logged on once, gone, oh, no, and walked quietly away, as they should have done. But those 1,000 accounts, each of them sent tens of thousands of messages a day. They were completely automated. And this site was making millions and millions of dollars. It had convinced millions and millions of men to have sexy conversations with bots, and they were paying for it. People are incredibly easy to trick in such a way. Uh, there's certain things that work better than others, but this attends, as I say, across pretty much all of our, our social networks and, and really, therefore, into politics and society more broadly. It's not just about trickery, either. It's not just about 
confusing people or getting them to do something or change their minds. A lot of, a lot of the arguments around the role of technology that, um, that play out in the political sphere are, are this idea that we're going to you know, change people's minds, make them do something they wouldn't do anyway. That's not always the intention, and this is really key. Um, the intention is often just confusion itself. This is the um, building in Moscow that houses something called the, sorry, in St. Petersburg, that houses something called the Internet Re Research Agency, which is a Russian government-funded uh, disinformation machine, essentially. Uh, hundreds of people work there as essentially professional trolls, uh, leaving comments on, on um, uh, websites, uh, sharing disinformation online, and so on and so forth. There's a really interesting interview with someone who worked at the Internet Research Agency who describes their strategy, which actually describes the kind of Russian government strategy in general and probably a number of other states. They said, like, we realized a long time ago it actually wasn't possible to change people's minds. What we want to do is we want to muddy the waters. We want to make the Internet so horrible that nobody sensible will want to have anything to do with it. They're just going to poison the discourse. Um, and that's very easy to do because it's so easy to manipulate and be manipulated through these systems. Uh, because they're, for most people, so hard to understand and so poorly designed and so much we know is made invisible by them that it's very hard for us to make informed decisions or to think clearly about what's actually happening on these systems. And we're doing this deliberately, right? We're continuing to do this all the time. I, I find it extraordinary that so much contemporary attention is paid to um, systems which are increasingly intended to confuse us further. These are outputs from a, a neural network. This was a presentation I saw a few weeks ago that showed how brilliantly a bunch of researchers could generate entirely new faces, fake people, uh, that were not, in fact, none of these are photographs of actual people. These are all computer-generated images which can then be masked onto uh, film or onto television or into the news to produce entirely fake realities. And this is also what's coming down the line, if it's not, as I very much suspect, pretty much in operation already. The point in which trust breaks down across pretty much all frontiers. And for me, this is really critical to our understanding of the world today. When people don't understand how the things they use actually work, when they know that information is being deliberately withheld from them, uh, that's deeply distressing. It undermines our sense of self and our sense of agency. And the result of that is confusion, it's fear, and it's anger, which are, as I'm sure you'll agree, the dominant emotions of social and political life across most of our societies today. I think there's a concrete and causal relationship between the opacity of the technologies we use every day, the way those things are constructed, and the, um, the lack of general understanding and the lack of ethics that exists within these technologies that we use today. We, we, we live in confused and fearful times, and it's producing the politics we have. And we're failing in our duty to assist with that education and with that understanding that would change that. So I talk about this, this darkness quite a lot, um, and I don't have a lot of time left. And I don't want to go out on a complete bummer, because I do that all the time, and it's something to do my head in as much as I'm sure it does in yours. Um, so I've been, I've been trying to think about how I end this talk without, without it being completely awful before you have lunch. Um, I'm really opposed to the idea of solutions. I'm opposed to solutionism in general, uh, because for me it's part of the problem. 
The idea that, ah, oh, here's a problem and we'll build an app for that is exactly the problem that we're in. So I don't talk about solutions. I don't talk about answers to this. I talk about maneuvers. Right? Uh, and here are, my, here are three small maneuvers or three small stories that possibly undo some of that other stuff. The first one is how we can use the technologies we have to produce radically different outcomes. And my favorite example of this is a strike by delivery drivers in London. As I said earlier, when you're following that little device around, when you have no control over your direction and your contacts, it can be very hard uh, to create a union, to argue for better working conditions, to confront your boss. Uh, so what delivery drivers in London did was a few of them have managed to get together on an online forum, and they went to the, the company's offices, and uh, they, st they started using the app to order pizza uh, to them. Right? So they, they started to get more and more drivers to come in, and they built a protest through the app by using it to um, actually introduce them to other workers rather than alienating them from them. Another example is of repurposing or rethinking what it is we want these technologies to be doing, to literally turn them around. This is a, a US spy satellite. These are vast, incredible technologies of extraordinary power um, that are like you know, the original ENIAC computer, mostly designed uh, to be pointed at us, to be used as weapons. Something really weird happened a few years ago, something I really love. I imagine it happening a bit like this. Um, Basically, at a conference or something, uh, someone from the uh, uh, National Geospatial Agency, which is like the even more secret than the NSA US spy satellite agency, sidled up to someone from NASA and went, do you want a couple of satellites? And they were like, mm, all right. Uh, and basically turned out the National Geospatial Agency had two Hubble-quality space telescopes sitting on the shelf that they'd never used and were clearly obsolete, and they've clearly got something way better and more scary now. But they donated these two satellites to NASA. NASA basically said, yes, we'll take them. They're currently repurposing one of them into something called the uh, Wide Field Inferometry Spectrometry uh, Telescope, basically a new, incredibly powerful space telescope that they're going to use to search for new galaxies, for, for new inhabitable worlds, for incredible scientific achievements. But it's this beautiful image of like taking a technology that was designed to be aimed down at us, right? And just literally flipping it around and looking out and seeing what we could discover instead with us for all of our benefits. And finally, I, I want to insist that none of this is about the technology itself. The technology itself is not inherently opaque. It's not inherently complex and impossible to understand. It's not inherently dangerous. And this has always been true. Right? This, is, this is what I think of as one of the first technologies of democracy. This is a thing called the Clerotarian, which is a larger stone which used to stand in the ancient agora of Athens in 300 BC when they invented democracy. Right? And it was a machine for administering democracy right? in a beautiful way. Uh, the entire suffrage, which to be clear was only free adult property-owning men, we can do a lot better, but the entire suffrage would come down, and those who were chosen by lot would insert little ID tags into the front of this stone, and someone would pour a set of balls down a tube, and according to the colors of those balls, black and white, be the people whose ID tags corresponded would be put in charge. Right? They actually had a system that was based on what's called sortition rather than elections. Uh, people in charge were chosen by lot, which is also a thing that I totally think should come back. Um, but my point is this. The technology that ran that democracy was something that stood in the middle of the market square, 
that was visible to everyone, that anyone could come down and they could see it at work and they could understand and fully participate in the system that they were engaged in. It's a simple technology. It's got more complicated, but the values it holds don't change. We can think about the context of the things that we build, and we can work to make them educative, more, more just, and increasing of equality, rather than intending to confuse and intending to overcome, to predict, to take the place of people, and essentially to remove their agency. So please, if anything, think about working on things like space telescopes and claritaria and projects like this that actually will insist us of getting out of the morass that we're presently in. Thank you very much.